Capital, Quinton Webb, who's Asia Markets Editor at the Wall Street Journal. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Asian markets are on the slide this morning. The ASX 200 in Australia is off 1%. So is the Nikkei 225 in Japan and also the Cosby in South Korea as well. All three down 1%. Looks like that's going to be a similar story for the Hang Seng at the open as well. Probably going to lose about 300 points according to the futures markets. Brent crude oil is also slipping after that OPEC plus agreement to increase production that was reached yesterday. Brent crude oil right now trading uh, about one and a quarter percent lower at $72.70 a barrel. Gold is rising this morning. It's at $1,817 an ounce. And that's it from me. Do please join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. Stay tuned for Back Chat with uh, Hugh Chivin and Mike Rouse. The weather forecast for today, cloudy with showers and squalls. Those showers are going to be heavy at times with thunderstorms. Maximum temperature is going to be about 28 degrees and the weather will be unsettled with squally showers and thunderstorms in the next couple of days. Those showers are going to be heavy. The thunderstorm warning is in force, as is the standby signal number one. 26 degrees right now and 94% relative humidity. It's just gone 8.31. Here's Susan Lavender with the half-hour news. A growing number of Olympic athletes and officials have either been infected with COVID-19 or are in quarantine just five days before the Games officially begin. The latest is the American tennis star Coco Coco Gauff, who will now miss the competition. The BBC's Michael Bristow has more. It's very difficult to see if these initial infections are going to affect the broader picture. At the moment, we've got about a few dozen people who have been affected, infected or under quarantine. If that number starts to get any larger, then you can see that there's going to be a real big impact on the Olympics. The hope will be amongst Olympic officials and Japanese leaders that the number of cases, the number of athletes that have to go into quarantine will be low enough not to have a major effect on the competitions. But at the moment, that looks as as though it's in the balance. Chancellor Merkel has spoken of surreal devastation as she toured one of the villages wrecked by Germany's worst floods for decades. Miss Merkel said Germany must fast improve its efforts to tackle climate change. We have to hurry. We have to get faster in our fight against climate change. And I believe that the European Union is working on just that. The fact that we will be the first continent to be carbon neutral by the middle of the century is something that matters. The number of people confirmed dead from the floods across northwest Europe has now risen to 190. The Afghan government and Taliban militants say they'll speed up their peace talks and are committed to continuing high-level negotiations until a settlement is found. They said they'd work to provide humanitarian assistance throughout Afghanistan, but the announcement, which came after the latest round of meetings in Qatar, contained few details or signs of any possible breakthroughs. The BBC's Lise Doucette is in Doha. These two days of high-level talks were meant to jumpstart a long-stalled political process. A joint statement affirms the commitment of both sides to keep talking. But neither side got what they were hoping for. The political leaders who came from Kabul had wanted to begin discussions on a roadmap for Afghanistan's political future. But the Taliban did not want to be drawn into a detailed process or even a date for a next round of talks. 
Danish cartoonist Kurt Vestergaard, best known for his controversial caricature of the Prophet Muhammad, has died. He was 84. The drawing was published in 2006 and first went largely unnoticed, but a campaign by Islamic activists led to protests and later violence in many Muslim countries. Mr Vestergaard was the target of an assassination attempt in 2010. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Backchat. I'm Hugh Chiverton. Your co-host today is Mike Rouse. Mike, good morning to you. Good morning, Hugh. Today, Hong Kong, China and the United States and a local school with a mainland curriculum. Beijing and Hong Kong officials have hit back at the US government for imposing sanctions on seven Chinese officials over the national security crackdown. President Biden had said last week that the situation here is deteriorating and the Chinese government is not keeping its commitment that it made on how it would deal with Hong Kong. Well, the liaison officer said the sanctions were no more than a piece of waste paper and would only strengthen their determination to fight for national interests. Carrie Lam said we can't allow such misguided remarks to go unchallenged. Chief Secretary said the SER would further implement would further implement the security law, saying the US bullying showed that it was vital to safeguard national security. And the Secretary for Security, Chris Tang, said the claim that the imposition of the so-called sanctions and issue of a business advisory were in response to the enactment and enforcement of the national security law is a lame excuse that could hardly stand up to challenge. AmCham says the city has a crucial role to play as an international business hub and that the chamber is well aware of the increasingly complicated geo political environment and its risk. Well, what is the effect uh, in reality of the advisory and the sanctions? What does Hong Kong mean to the US and to China? And what of Hong Kong's international standing? Let us know your thoughts. You can either message on our Facebook page, Bankchat and RTHK Radio 3. You can email us, bankchat at rthk.hk, or you can call us. And our number is 233-88266. 233-88266. After 9.15, as I say, we're going to be talking about uh, school, which will be opening in uh, uh, the first here offering a mainland Chinese curriculum uh, in the city. Once again, our email address is backchat at rthk.hk. Uh, joining us for our first topic we have with us now, uh, Mark Michelson, Chairman uh, Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia, Sean Rain, founder of China Market Research Group, and Dr. Ryan Manuel, who's uh, Managing Director of Official China Limited, a research company based in Hong Kong, and Chief Asia Strategist for Silverhorn uh, Investment uh, Advisors. Uh, Dr. Manuel, maybe we'll start with you. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you very much indeed for, for joining us. So, um, strong words uh, traded last week and uh, over the weekend. Uh, how much do you think they amount to? What about, first of all, about this, this advisory. What, what, what impact, if any, will this advisory have? Um, on the formal procedures, I mean, there's not much he can do. It's, it's signifying a shift in strategy to some extent, but I don't think it's one that's going to materially change the interest of businesses. Um, I mean, the US has a, has a strategy, um, different from other countries' strategies, say Australia or others, and international business still has the same incentives. I, it's, it's just what's unclear to me is what the U.S. wants from Hong Kong specifically, as opposed to Hong Kong being a part of U.S.-China relations more generally. Uh, okay, and the uh, and the sanctions likewise. Again, that would be more of a gesture than anything else, having no real particular uh, consequences. Uh, 
always consequences to these things because they escalate, as you rightly started off by saying, like this has become a tit-for-tat problem. And the Chinese have shown very clearly that they will respond with their own very targeted measures. But the deeper strategy of the thing is, is what baffles me here. You know, I mean, there, there just seems a not clear line in the US as to what Hong Kong is as opposed to China. There just seems to be a blurring of being like, well, Hong Kong is now China to an extent for, for business purposes. And you need to bear that in mind if you're a business, which, of course, the businesses, I mean, they have their own incentives. They, they have their own needs for capital. And Hong Kong still is a place with much more liquidity and much deeper capital markets than, say, the mainland. So it's, it's in many ways confusing to me. Yes. Yeah. Dr. Manu, good morning. It's, it's, this is Mike Rouse. It's confusing to me too. Two immediate thoughts jump off the page. One is, what, what does this tell companies... Oh, what's that? Sorry, I just put <laughs> under the wrong spot. <laughs> what, what does this message tell American companies in Hong Kong that they, they didn't already know because they're here? That, that's the first point. But the second one is sort of more hidden and intriguing. This has all been done under the banner of national security. Where did that angle come in? From a U.S. perspective, or was it coming yeah. from a Hong Kong perspective? From the from, from the, the U.S. Perspective. perspective. I mean, this is frankly blowback for a badly drafted NSL by putting in the rules in the NSL about funding, which are quite nasty, and were not necessary in many ways. As in, if you fund or support anyone who's committed crime under the NSL, you become liable for punishment as well. It's really showing that, like, it's showing that there becomes a national security angle to doing simple everyday acts that affect business. And we're seeing that sort of flow on to big tech firms, Facebook, Google, all those things are saying, well, if our employees do certain acts now, we're not sure that they're not liable. So, I mean, that's, that's the part of the constant bleeding of securitization, I guess, into what doesn't really need to be there. Um, so, I mean, that, that sort of comment one is, well, they sort of reap what they sowed in some way. I mean, if you put in laws saying if you fund people, it makes, like, any sort of money transfer then leading to sort of some quite nasty legal consequences. The second part on bringing national security into business more generally, again, is, I think, showing to me, and this is only a question, you can't prove it, that there seems to be a conflation of doing business in Hong Kong. It's sort of like doing business in China now, which couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, you're starting from such a different starting point here in Hong Kong. That is a, a, just a completely different world from what your starting point is in the mainland. I mean, the starting point here is there are rules, there are laws, there are... I mean, even the national security is governed by law. There is, of course, a security law in China, but it's, you know, it, it's used in a very different way. Um, and there's much more informal norms and enforcements and things like that that can happen through the party. So I, I think that's actually the most concerning thing is just saying, well, everything's national security and therefore <laughs> it doesn't leave a huge amount of room to, to wiggle around, right? Like it just leads to much more eye-for-eye kind of things. You sanction me, I sanction you. You know, you, you ban this company, we talk about them. Oh, well, you know, we're going to do this or that, that or the other. It, it's this kind of classic prison's dilemma, like race to the bottom in some ways by saying everything is being securitized, but 
I do have to put that caveat out there that the NSL had a drafting that, in that sense, does lend or <laughs> does make it easier for the US to say, well, you, you've done this as well, and, and therefore we're within our rights we consider to, to sort of bring in a national security angle to what is essentially a commercial issue. Will this have an effect, though, on, you know, Hong Kong's international standing, on people willing to do business in Hong Kong, or will it have no effect? It's not no effect, because, of course, everything has an effect. I mean, otherwise, we wouldn't be talking about it, I guess. But my problem is that you need money. I mean, you know, the, the, the business is undeniable here. The, the, the firm's IPO listings, you know, capital markets, it's very attractive right now. Even if we want to look at a simple proxy measure, look at the impact on the Hong Kong exchange stock price. I mean, which shot up. It's, it's, there's, there's definitely, somewhat paradoxically for Hong Kong, the more that these two giants fight, you know, businesses still need access to capital. And so there's, there's always going to be a need for what Hong Kong can provide. I mean, what worries me is that sort of ordinary smaller businesses, ordinary smaller people say just life in general gets caught up because of this constant securitization of what is actually under the rules, not how we should be acting. Hmm. Also with us is uh, Mark Michelson, Chairman uh, Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. Mark, good morning to you. Uh, morning. Uh, thanks you. for joining us. So strong words uh, exchanged last week uh, and over the weekend. Um, what do they amount to? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously there are domestic politics involved. As was suggested by the Professor, there, there's data security issues involved, and maybe that's what triggered it to some extent. And you've, you've heard the reaction by some of the major uh, major, major uh, IT firms and others that have, that have talked about this. But at the same time... Sorry, what, what are the data security Well, concerns? in a sense, you know, because, because now, you know, there, there's, a, there's a worry that firms' data is, is now going to be, is, will not be secure and can, can't be stored in Hong Kong easily. And, you know, some of the firms are worried about that. Whether that's real or not, that's 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 an impression and as you, as you may know there's a new law that's being passed by hong kong that suggests that you know that there'll be more more scrutiny of of, of firms in in this area so there's is, been a is reaction this, is to this it. the doxing yeah it's a doxing law it's a doxing law and it's related to doxing but of course what the worry is it's more than that whether it is or not is another question of but, course but all right so a company in american company in hong kong has some data and it's worried it might be a forced to give up that data but is that a national security concern back in america no well it may not be but you know almost everything is these days you know everything is, is really, i'm not defending it i'm just saying that when i look is, at american politics the trouble is it's so split on many things who won the 2020 election for example whether you should get vaccinated the one thing on which americans seem to agree is that china's a terrible villain well the, and, and the, i'm looking at the midterm elections and thinking this fits right in. Biden's got a hammer, China got a hammer, Hong Kong, um, to show that he's not going soft. Yeah, well, this is the issue. But again, uh, Hugh, Hugh referenced the American Chamber statement, and it mentioned this as well. You have to, we're, you know, businesses here are aware of this and have some issues, which some of which have been raised with, with national security and other things, but they still think Hong Kong provides unique business opportunities, most of them. And they're staying here, and you know it has, 
it has there you know they think that the increased legal and operational risks maybe there are greater ones but they aren't they aren't overwhelming yet so the key areas are f free flow of information and and rule of law and these are important aspects which distinguished hong kong not only from the rest of china but from most of the rest of the region certainly most of the rest of asia and even with the changes and even with some of the threats that we've heard about hong kong still stands pretty high in that in that ranking it's a question of what happens next and that's the worries and that's affecting employees of these international firms i think even more than it is uh the ceos and the others that run them in what way i mean the they, they just don't know what the red lines are so if there are and it's just not all of them it's the only ones that can but if they see opportunities to to go elsewhere whether it's the uk or whether it's canada or australia some of them are are taking that and other companies are 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 uh, dividing their regional headquarters in a sense leaving the senior management here but moving them around the region or or elsewhere some of this has nothing to do with the politics but you know it might be operational as well and some of it's actually been been accelerated by covid so all these factors are are combining but at the same time it's a question of whether this is a big you know this is very visible but now is the U.S. has been undergoing a review of China policy since the Biden administration started. It's not clear when that's going to end, but it's got to end sometime. And is there going to be a move to sort of uh, sort of calm down a little bit? And you might have seen a statement. I don't want to go on too long, but Secretary of Treasury Janet Yellen mentioned that she didn't think the tariffs were very effective. In fact, they they were counterproductive in many ways. And maybe that's a hint. I hope it's a hint that the U.S. and China are actually going to talk about something substantial and maybe uh, maybe find ways to to work together, at least in some ways, because they really need to economically and, and politically. OK, Sean, Sean Rain, uh, good morning to you. Uh, founder of China Market Research Group. Um, thanks for, for joining us. Uh, what, what's your reading of this? Um, you know, what do we learn from about U.S.-China relations uh, in the light of this uh, spat over Hong Kong? Well, it's nice to be here. Thanks for having me. I think um, the first chap said that there isn't really law in China, which I completely disagree with. Um, I think if you've done business in China, it's quite clear um, what are the regulations, what are the rules and laws that multinationals need to follow. And when they're here, they make a lot of money. And that's why China's become the largest market for companies like Adidas, um, Nike, Starbucks in the world. So the issue is, what is Hong Kong's role? And how does the United States want to allow or not allow China's continued growth? So from the mainland perspective, the attacks and the economic sanctions on Hong Kong are just part and parcel of a continued attack by first the Trump regime and now the Biden regime to try to destabilize and contain China's growth. So they're slapping economic sanctions on Xinjiang, on Tibet, on Hong Kong, not necessarily because... Um, Hong Kong's done anything bad, but because the United States doesn't like to have an economic superpower rival. And so the United States will not use a hot war, hopefully, but will try to use technological containment or economic containment to stop China's rise. That's the first part. Now, the second part, which I think is more concerning for Hong Kong, is that Hong Kong in many ways doesn't really matter for the mainland Chinese economy anymore. I mean, it's quite clear when you look at the economic indicators um, Hong Kong only got rich 
by being a bridge when China decided to open up and embrace capitalism in the late 70s and the early 80s. And by being a bridge for foreign capital into China, um, Hong Kong did well. Hong Kong was poor when it was still run by, you know, the, the British colonial empire. Now, the question is, what can Hong Kong be for mainland? Not much right now. Okay, so when it comes to tourism, you know, mainland Chinese don't want to go to Hong Kong anymore because they're worried about being beaten up with bigotry. So what does mainland China do? They increase the duty-free spending in Hainan Island. I just got back from there uh, two weeks ago, and you see all the mainland tourists. But, but Sean Rain, we're awash in IPOs. I mean, we're awash in yeah, IPOs, me, surely. Yeah, what? let me finish. So when it comes to tourism, they're going to go to Hainan. When it comes to multinationals, you're seeing the headquarters are moving from Hong Kong because there are rules in Shanghai or Beijing to make money. What Hong Kong can be, and what I think Hong Kong will continue to be very powerful for, is for IPOs. Hong Kong, exactly what you said. Hong Kong will continue to be the finance center and raising capital for Chinese companies. Now, when you look at it, mainland companies don't want to go to the United States anymore. They're scared about being delisted. You have the new data laws where if you have more than one million users, um, the Chinese government needs to approve you for the first time to go public in the United States. Now they're saying if you go public in Hong Kong, you might not have to get that approval. My guess is in the next three years, the number of mainland companies IPOing or returning from the United States and doing a secretary offering in, in Hong Kong are going to absolutely boom because there's access to capital. The entrepreneurs want to get money out of RMB and into foreign currency. And because while there are good laws in China for doing multinational-type business like a Honeywell, I do think that the financial service laws in Hong Kong remain far more vibrant. All right. Uh, Ryan, Ryan Manuel, I know, you've got to go in a, I know you've got to go in a moment. Do you, do you want to respond, uh, Dr. Manuel? Yeah, sure. I mean, firstly, it's a bit rich to say that, like, we're not sure if people can list in Hong Kong or not, and then also say that the mainland laws are clear. But um, leaving that aside, I mean... When did I say that? You said that it was unsure if the, if the central government would allow mainland companies to have the same data rules. I think you're quite confused. I didn't say that. I said that there's a discussion that if you have more than one million users, you need to get approval from the Chinese government. And that yes. was a new law, and now yes. they're in discussion about whether or not to implement that for IPOing in Hong Kong. So don't distort my words and don't distort what's happening in the legal system here. It takes time and discussion before something's actually enacted into law. So you're saying there's a different legal regime for the U.S. than for Hong Kong? Yes or no? Yes. Okay, so going back to my point again, there is an issue of the rules are clearer in Hong Kong because when the rule is passed in Hong Kong the first time, it applies for everyone. That's how laws work. Anyway, that's, that's starting a, something that's not quite so interesting, because I think you're saying some really interesting things. Where do you see, though, this split between trying to carve off IPOs and capital and financial services from, say, Xi Jinping's push into Shenzhen, the Greater Bay Area? These are things that actually do materially affect Hong Kong life. And so I guess where I'm curious as to your thoughts are, is if this sort of picture of yours of like you raise money in Hong Kong and nothing else is true, what does that mean for sort of Shenzhen, Guangzhou, all these places where there are other things happening that are also trying to become the IPO areas? And how will that flow through onto, say, Hong Kong? And if Hong Kong is so unimportant, by the way, why is the US mentioning it 
you know, explicitly. Why is the U.S. focusing on it so tightly? Well, it's easy for the U.S. to try to destabilize the mainland through the same old Hong Kong, Tibet, Taiwan, Xinjiang. They continue to do that. So that's why, I mean, it's just an easy play to get uh, criticism and whip up fury internationally against mainland. Now, Greater Bay is going to take away and sap away a lot of the power from Hong Kong when it comes to logistics, when it comes to everything that Hong Kong was so strong from the 80s until 2014, a lot of those um, strengths are going to move into Shenzhen and into the Guangdong region. I mean, the amount of port construction that's going along those areas is incredible. It is going to feed into the high-end manufacturing in southern China. It's also going to be controlled by mainlanders rather than just the same old 510 families in Hong Kong that create so much economic um, imbalance. Because uh, it's really unfair how the Hong Kong system is controlled by a few tycoons. Um, in terms of IPOs, what I expect is you're going to have the bigger guys, like a Meituan, uh, like an Alibaba-sized, or Douyin, are going to go to Hong Kong because they're going to want the international capital. And then they might even change rules and allow for more secondary listings to have things go off into A shares as well into the Hong Kong market. I think the key for China is it's embarrassing that they don't have a capital market where the top Chinese companies want to go public in. It's, it's, it's humiliating that they want to go to New York or go to London, and China's going to want them to stay in Hong Kong or mainland China. And off of the two, then, Hong Kong starts to look good. It looks great. Hong Kong's great for finance, don't get me wrong. It's going to be the major um, finance hub globally over the next three to five years, and I think that's why they put Nicholas Aguzin, I can't pronounce his name, the former J.P. Morgan head, as a foreigner there to try to give more credibility to the international institutional investors. I'm very bullish on finance for Hong Kong. And you see this... This statement, which I'm, I'm still grappling with the idea of why it's national security for America, but never mind, this statement is really part of the big picture tussle. And America is picking on ever. It's cotton in Xinjiang. It's going to be the Dalai Lama when he passes and there's a successor to him. Uh, this is Hong Kong because of the national security. Whatever stick you can pick up to beat China, that's what you pick up. I mean, Dr. Dr. Manuel, are you, are you still there? You you were you were confused about the uh, the reasons for the American policies. Is this is this a, a credible explanation? Look, I think it's very easy to sit on the outside and make explanations. I think to say that the United States is setting out to destabilize China is very simplistic. Um, there's no polite way to say it, um, and that's okay. Like you know, we're in a we're in a talk show, but. You know, we've got to think about this is not just like a country. This is a collection of many important firms. This is a collection of many people. There's huge intertwining here. And I think in one sense, what we do agree on, Mr. Ian and I, is that this idea of thinking of Hong Kong as a chip is perhaps not right. I think there needs to be some recalibration on the US side towards that. To say, though, that's part of the U.S. trying to destabilize China is not supported by any evidence, I think. I'm not sure Carrie Lam would agree. She can't get an American bank account. Mark, do you agree? I, yeah, I think, that's, I think that's basically it. I mean, there's, you know, like, I'm not a big supporter of sanctions. 
on either side. I, th- I think they often turn out to be counterproductive. So I- I'm not sure this is the right approach. But you know, I, I think that's that's a general feeling. There is there is a rivalry, and I think among some people in the in the United States government, maybe not not the president at the moment, but others, it is very much it's we versus them, and it's a zero sum game. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, Dr. Manuel. Um, so Chris Tang said um, this: uh, the claim that this was to do with the NSL is a lame excuse. Uh, do you agree? Do you agree that this has got nothing to do with really to do with the national security law? I mean, it's not directly to do with the national security law, but to say that it has nothing to do with it again ignores that there's financial parts of the national security law. Will the national security law have implications, positive or negative, for the for the financial uh, what we do in terms of finance in Hong Kong? It will have some because of the parts that say if you give support to somebody to commit a crime under the national security law and support is taken as financial of any description, you are liable, and that leads to greater legal risk. I mean, it's in the law. I'm not sure where we're saying can sort of differ on that particular front. But to say that, like, the NSL is responsible, you know, that it has nothing to do with... It's, it's the blurring of security and, you know, exactly the forces that, that we all agree on, which is that Hong Kong is a very attractive destination for businesses to list and do various things on HKX or other things. That's, you, you know, it, it's, it's linking the security law by the US to the rules of Hong Kong, that is, I think, dangerous because, yeah. Okay. Well, Dr. Manuel, thanks very much indeed for for joining us. We'll continue the discussion after the news uh, at nine. The weather cloudy with school showers and schools. There's a thunderstorm warning and standby signal number one. 27 degrees, the latest readings with the relative humidity now up at 94%. Back in three minutes' time. The Malian Army said, you're listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome back, back chat this Monday morning with Mike Rouse and me, Hugh Tewitt, and we're continuing to talk about US-China relations and the role of Hong Kong, the place of Hong Kong, uh, following that uh, uh, interchange uh, over the weekend and uh, before the uh, sanctions and the advisory issued by the uh, US government and the response. Uh, we were talking in the first part of the program to uh, Dr. Uh, Ryan Manuel. We're still uh, with us is uh, Sean Rain, who's the founder of China Market Research Group, and Mark Michelson, Chairman Asia CEO Forum at IMA Leisure. Later, Asia. Later, we're going to be talking about uh, the opening of a mainland curriculum school. I think the first one, the the plot at any rate, has been set aside for uh, such a school uh, in Hong Kong. Ip Kinyan will be joining us for that once again. Uh, we want to hear from you. You can email backchat at rthk. You can call us on 233-88266 or you can go to our Facebook page. That's Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. And uh, comment on what's in your mind. Jim H says, The elephant in the room is that China never interfered in the Americans' use of the National Guard to put down peaceful demonstrations in Baltimore or riots in Los Angeles, Detroit and Chicago. Police brutality against America's minorities. What gives the American lies opinion standings? 
Uh, Alan says, Backchat, your American Wu-Mao guest, sorry, never heard his name, says that sanctions are motivated purely by geopolitics, that it's about destabilizing China. He's parroting the CCP line, ignoring any moral aspect, ignoring the abuses by the Hong Kong government and justifying the NSL, which treats anyone who protests about local politics and human rights a tool of Yankee black hands. That's from uh, Alan. Um, on Facebook, Henry says, US latest sanctions on Hong Kong liaison officials this time are empty and toothless as the victims are second-tier officials. If prior sanctions on the head of the liaison office, Carrie Lam, etc., did not achieve their goals other than inconveniences, it only shows the US runs out of what it could do. If they have the guts and to show America is great, why don't US sanction President Xi, uh, Prime Minister Lee, all the, uh, Premier Lee, all the staff of liaison office and Hong Kong Macau office? As Sha Bao Long said yesterday, such actions on the part of Western governments only generate hatred despised towards the US regime. I totally agree. Why don't US sanction itself over the NSL? Clearly, US clandestine covert operations in Hong Kong is severely affected. Uh, that's from uh, Henry. And um, a TC says it's strange that in response to US sanctions, China takes it out on Hong Kong. That's from uh, TC. Once again, our email is backchat.rthk.hk. Uh, Mark Michelson, I mean, just this, it comes down, doesn't it, to whether you believe that the US wants to destabilise China through Hong Kong. Do you? Yeah, I, I don't, really, because, you know, you look at what are national interests, and I don't see how that would be that would be beneficial to the United States, frankly, economically or politically. Sure, there are differences. And I'm not saying there aren't some people in the United States or elsewhere that might want to do that, maybe on the other side as well. But I, I just I just don't think that's the primary. They want to be ahead of China and they want to it's really a fight to be number one. I think between the two between the two countries, technologically and economically in many other ways. But but in in terms of of working hard to destabilize it, I, as I said, I think it'd be in many ways counterproductive, and I I would hope a lot of people would understand that. Well, I think many people would agree with what you just said. But certainly, when Mike Pompeo was Secretary of State, he saw the regime change in Beijing as uh, America's target. Uh, that that's what he said. But you know, a lot of this is 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 playing to the crowd as well and who and I'm not sure what he really believes and he's he's not secretary of state and, anymore. He, and he's the second highest cash supported candidate for republican well, nomination yeah. if Trump doesn't run yeah um, we're a few I, years away from that I wanted to ask you something else there's a there's a members only closed door meeting I think it's tomorrow between the American Chamber of Commerce and the consul general uh what do you think he's going to say well, I don't. I, I think he. I think he's just going to try to try to talk talk about some of the issues that people raise, including the ones we're talking about today. Uh, but I really don't know. It'd be nice if it was open to to the media, wouldn't it? Well, I, I'm not sure if there'll be anything there that, that that's different than before. But you know, this happens from time to time, I suspect. But I actually don't know what he's going to say. Hmm. But you know, the other thing is, you know, there is restraint here as well because. One of the things that's been threatened, and I hope it never happens, is is real sanctions on financial institutions, which you know has been part of the part of the uh, the quiver of arrows that the U.S. hasn't done. In part because the blowback and the implications would be so 
so detrimental to the United States and the rest of the world. And that would be like limitations on foreign exchange transactions, bans for property transactions, restrictions in dealing in debt or equities, all those sorts of things, which would be, you know, they, they might hurt China and Hong Kong, but they might hurt the rest of the world and the United States even more. So, you know, we're... There is some uh, some uh, some people being careful a little bit about this situation as well. So America could come up with uh, worse things to do in future. Yeah, I don't think they. Uh, you know, one hopes they won't. But as I said, one of the reasons you wouldn't do this is because it's it would be uh, it would be devastating for everyone concerned. One thing that's been uh, mooted, and I think there was a report in Reuters, uh, would be to uh, extend sort of a visa. Uh, openness to allow Hong Kong people to to come to the U.S. You know something more along the lines of the BNO and other places have uh, Canada and so on have uh, made it easier for Hong Kong people who want to leave. Do you think that's a possibility? I think it's a possibility. I don't. I just don't know how attractive it would be. In, in the past, it's been mixed because there are a lot of, as you know, the reaction to people coming to the United States has been, been uh, not exactly positive in many ways, and especially in the past few years. So, you know, that might have an impact as well. A lot of um, giant mainland Chinese still study in the States. Yes, of course. And in fact, I was told over the weekend that somebody couldn't get on a Cathay flight uh, to the West Coast at all in the month of August because of all the mainland students returning to California via Hong Kong. So it's... it's that would certainly affect relations. Yeah, no, and it, it's important for both sides actually because it's 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 had a big impact on American universities, the uh, both COVID and 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 the political situation and so on. Because many of them depend on on Chinese students not not only for 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 the funds that they contribute to the university, but for the research and for the cooperation they've established over years. And a lot of this is in engineering and the sciences and and technology and so on. Mm. Um, Sean Rain, uh, you know, Beijing hasn't re- hasn't been particularly proactive in, in responding, has it? It seems to have kind of uh, taken a lot of these, these punches. Uh, why, why is that? Why doesn't uh, Beijing hit back? I think it's clear that Beijing doesn't want a cold war or a hot war with the United States. I actually think they've shown a lot of restraint um, in the last nine months, especially in the run-up to the U.S. presidential elections. Um, the Chinese side view, and I believe this, that they don't want to take over the world. They just want to protect their own national sovereignty and their own interests. And they're, they're not trying to create vassal states in Australia or Europe. I mean, if you look at it since 1979, China hasn't shot a bullet outside of its borders. Now, when it comes to sovereignty issues, that's a different story. You know, China considers Taiwan and Hong Kong and Tibet um, part of their, their border. Um, I don't want to get into a discussion on that. But anything aside from that, they really don't want to have too much pain with the United States. Now, when you look at it, during Trump's trade war, basically, if Trump said, we're going to slap 50 billion U.S. dollars of sanctions on China, China immediately said, we will slap 50 billion U.S. dollars back and fight to the death. But at the end of the day, we want to try to find common ground with the United States. It was very important for President Xi to show the world that he could stand up to Trump and match sanctions, but he never went above them. And he always said things quite conciliatorily in the Chinese media, which the Western press, like BBC and the such, didn't accurately report to the rest of the world. So I think right now, President Xi has already shown he's strong. 
he doesn't feel like he needs to match every provocation from the United States. And I hope he doesn't. You know, I think that we certainly need to have calm um, people, rational people in D.C. and Beijing, because the tension between the U.S. and China just doesn't really help anyone. Um, and unfortunately, D.C. has gotten hysterical about all things China. So I would hope, uh, if I were advising Xi, and I'm not, but if I were, I would tell him, just be calm. Just wait things out a little bit. Yeah, Hugh, just uh, what I would hope would happen is that there's more engagement between between the U.S. and China for both sides. And it's difficult politically for both sides, especially in the U.S. these days. But, you know, there hasn't been a there hasn't been a direct meeting between President Biden and Xi. Obviously, that could occur at the G20. And I, it looks like that's the first time it will. There's not a U.S. ambassador in Beijing, and there hasn't even been one name. There have been rumors and so on. You know, it's, that's a little worrying. Is, is there also a Chinese ambassador missing? From well, he, there's, there's a change. There's right. a change, but that was, but you know, it, that wasn't quite as... It's still trying to talk about a, a meeting of some sort between the second-tier American official? Well, no, that, well, the... the, 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 the uh, the deputy secretary of state is yeah. coming to Asia later this Wendy Sherman later this month, and she was she was wanted to meet with with her counterparts in China, and she was offered apparently how do I know she was offered uh, people that were a little lower ranking, and so you know there's there's a negotiation on that, but she's coming to Asia anyway. She's going to go to other countries. She's going to Mongolia, yeah, yeah, well, a couple of maybe Japan as well. I've forgotten. Dr. Manuel's point in the first part was that the the, the NSL uh, does have implications for the for the U.S. and for U.S. businesses because of the because of the uh, uh, foreign interference uh, and so on and foreign funding and the fact that it applies uh, apparently applies to everybody in the world uh, because it's not limited to uh, you know um, permanent residents or people living in Hong Kong uh, and so on. Um, is he right? Do you agree? Do you, do you think there are there are uh, you know implications for for everyone, for especially for American businesses? Well, in our I think there are concerns. You know, there have been various surveys by American Chamber and others that have suggested that companies here have concerns about the national security law, in part because they're they're not sure what the actual implications are, as, as, you, as you've suggested. Maybe that is a threat, but you know it may not be as well. And as I said, it's made some of their uh, some of their employees unsettled. So you know there are concerns, but it's not, it's not enough to, uh, you know, previously it was mentioned that that companies are moving out of Hong Kong headquarters. Maybe there there are a few, but you know I chair a group of regional CEOs, and not many of them have moved, and they're not it's intending to at this point. Sorry, I think it might hurt business a little bit. I know that the um, similar sanctions and a similar um, wording by Secretary Blinken last week about Xinjiang has hurt a lot of our clients. They don't want to do business in Xinjiang right now um, because they're scared of the United States pointing a finger at them, launching an investigation, sanctioning them, or just the reputational damage. And so for me, like, I don't agree with economic sanctions at all. I actually think they're a crime against humanity, and they only are, they're counterproductive and impoverish the people that you're supposed to be helping. You know, when you look, you know, in Cuba, the Cubans are extraordinarily poor. Iran, you impoverish people for generations. And I think a lot of businesses are going to say, you know what, maybe Hong Kong is just not worth it right now. Um, either we're going to move to the mainland because it is worth it, because the market is so lucrative, or we're just going to move to Singapore. So I think if the United States has evidence of wrongdoing and wants to lash out at 
um, Hong Kong or Xinjiang or Iran or wherever, the last thing they should be doing would be economic sanctions, because that just hurts innocent people while strengthening the hand, frankly, of um, the powers that be. Okay. Uh, well, uh, Sean Rain, uh, founder of uh, China Market uh, Research Group, um, thanks very much indeed for, for for joining us. I mean, do you think that when Biden and and she get together, will you know, will there be some resolution? Will that be will that push us in the right direction? Yeah. Sorry. I think it was good that the U.S. last week, um, Jen Psaki said we do reaffirm the One China policy. I think the big mistake that Biden made um, was when, during the confirmation hearings, um, Secretary Blinken said that there is genocide taking place in Xinjiang, and he didn't provide evidence. And that was because Mike Pompeo, on his very, very last day of office as Secretary of State, said what's happening in Xinjiang is genocide, and Blinken agreed. Now, I don't know what's happening up there. I've never been there, so I'm not going to defend or criticize something I don't know. But by categorizing it as genocide, that has gotten everybody in mainland China really upset. Um, all of the other things are actually fair game from state-to-state -state politics. But when you start labeling genocide and a genocidal regime, you're saying that she is an evil person. He's like an Adolf Hitler. It's very hard for him to then try to find common ground with Biden, who also, by the way, last year called she uh, a thug. So I, actually, when you talk about wolf warriors... I actually think the United States um, demeans China's leadership far more than China's diplomats demean America's. Right. I, well, I have been to Xinjiang. I was there 20 years ago um, and uh, discussed with people who use Xinjiang com uh, cotton. Uh, Marjorie Yang, for example. Um, and there was nothing. No question of forced labor uh, at all. And I noticed that three Italian think tanks issued a report over the weekend all saying that what America was saying about Xinjiang was nonsense. And these are representatives of companies that are working in Xinjiang, Xinjiang province. I have clients that do business in Xinjiang, um, and they all say that the accusations are ridiculous. Um, I haven't been. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to go up next week, actually, to look around if it's approved. Um, I have just gotten back from Tibet, for example, um, last month, and I've been to Tibet several times uh, over the last 20 years, and it's quite clear that the quality of life for everyday Tibetans has improved dramatically in the last 20 years since I went to Tibet in 2001. That the Tibetan language is being preserved. I've seen it being taught in schools in Tibet. Uh, signs are in Tibetan, and I've seen a lot of the religious pilgrims who are free to practice their own religion. So I'm not going to say anything about Xinjiang because I've never been there. But what the China's government has done for Tibet has really pulled the people there out of poverty. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if 20, 30 years from now we're going to hear the same thing from Xinjiang. Okay. Well, uh, Sean Rain, many thanks for joining us, founder of uh, China Market Research Group, and Mark Michelson. Thank you very much indeed, chairman of Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. Uh, thanks very much indeed for joining us today. Finally, today with the time now at... Uh, to, oh, sorry, one more comment from J Jim uh, H, who says, American political activists against China 
are huge financial supporters of the two political parties in America. The party in power is used to advance its agenda of disruption of any communist party, any place. Being so successful, China is an easy target. Uh, turning finally today, uh, as mentioned, to uh, a new school, uh, the Education Bureau uh, said last week it was inviting submissions from uh, private uh, organisations to uh, establish uh, school specifically for mainland-style learning with uh, a mainland Chinese curriculum designed to serve the families of uh, migrant business professionals uh, here. Uh, joining us for comment, we have now Ip Kin Yun, Vice President of the Hong Kong Professional Teachers Union, former education sector lawmaker. Mr. Ip, good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you very much indeed for, for joining us. So uh, the first time uh, this has happened, um, are you aware of much demand? Do you think there, there will be uh, uh, many people who want to uh, send their children to this kind of school? I'm not sure. <laughs> I, I, I don't have any idea about that. But I think well, the government, when, when they are proposing to establish a new school like that, uh, they should be projecting uh, you know, a higher demand for that kind of curriculum, that kind of school. Uh, so the, those um, uh, demands might come from you no know, people from mainland China to Hong Kong, uh, maybe you know, serving as government officials, or you know, there are more and more government officials from mainland, and there are also uh, you no know, private business people. Uh, and in in the past, you know, they, these people might want to go to uh, international schools uh, or you know, send their children to. International schools or local schools, uh, but the government might project that you know that they would prefer uh, no people uh, like this would uh, send their children to to uh, schools that would you know uh, connect them to the uh, mainland curriculum. Right, Mr. Yip, good morning. Um, good morning. This, if you're going to have a lot of mainland officials in and out of Hong Kong, or business leaders in and out of Hong Kong. Um, they want to bring their f families with them, maybe during the Hong Kong posting, um, but knowing that they're later going to be moving back to the mainland. So having having a school where they can continue, it's just the same as it would be for the American community or, or the German community and so on, where we have all those international schools. So this right, really right. In, the, in the same pattern, isn't it? Right, that, that, that might be possible. Um... And so I think, well, uh, this is the nature of the new school is similar to other uh, international schools in Hong Kong, which will lead the students if they go back to uh, their own country, for example, Germany or Switzerland or other places. You know, they, the, the curriculum will be, uh, you know, uh, they, they would not need to uh, you know, adapt to a totally new curriculum. They would be you know, quite familiar with that because you know, the, the international school will actually practice uh, the, the, uh, the, that kind of curriculum. I suppose one, of, one indicator will be the response from potential operating bodies. I mean, if they don't see any demand, they won't ask for the site. So if they are coming forward um, and, and bid positively, saying, yes, please, and here is our proposal, that would be one indication. And right. also I get a question of leakage as well, in the sense that a lot of the students uh, in the French international school are not French. Um, they're from right. Hong Kong families. <laughs> and the same with the German-Swiss and, and so on. Um, so I guess that it could be a demand for mainland-type even from some Hong Kong families, 
if they see that their future is Greater Bay Area, for example? That's a very interesting uh, issue. Uh, for example, when you, when you mention about the Germans versus schools, actually there, uh, there are two streams for those schools. One is for German as well as uh, curriculum. Uh, that I think um, not too many uh, local parents are, are interested in. But, you know, uh, the German schools and other international schools are also required to run uh, an English stream. Uh, so uh, many local uh, parents are actually involved in that English stream. So um, uh, for this uh, new school, it will come to a very interesting issue that you no know, whether local schools are local parents are interested to send their children to it will comes to the question of the very uh, nature of the school is it for um, no people from mainland to, uh, to to take care of the children uh, so so this if that is the primary objective uh, of the school, uh, it should not uh, involve too many local right. uh, parents. Will there be but, any language requirement? I mean, will it be taught in Pudongwa, or will there be an English stream or a Cantonese stream, or do we no, not know at this stage? I think if the school is, the nature of the school is to take care of the, you know, uh, those people from mainland, uh, and to you know, get them back to that curriculum eventually, uh, the, the language use should be in Putonghua or mainly in Putonghua. So I think, well, um, uh, and if for local parents, if they want to send their children to, to uh, that kind of curriculum, they actually, if they stay, if they go to do their businesses in, in mainland, in, in Shanghai, in Great uh, Bay, Greater Bay Area, and they can send their children to the schools there. So actually, you know, if you're stationed in Hong Kong and send your children to uh, a school like this, you know, uh, it's quite confusing. I don't know what's the purpose of that. Is Tin Shui Wai the best place? Yeah, it's a bit funny being, being so close to the border, isn't it? If they were, if you were appealing to professionals or mainland officials, they would all be based typically in Hong Kong Island and so on. So why is the school up at, near the border? It's, uh, it's another interesting point I would like to know. I know why the uh, government uh, was, uh, proposed to build the new school in Tin Shui Wai. Uh, is it for cross-border uh, parents? Uh, no, from people who are living in mainland to send their children to 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 the border uh, to cross the border, or you know, uh, if the government is thinking that you know Hong Kong after all is a small place, and many international schools you know, scattered in different places, and 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 uh, the children will take uh, will use the different kind of transportation to go to the school. So the two. Uh, quite different hypotheses. Right. Uh, I'm not sure we know the gov what, what, what the government is it, thinking. It's about. a fair point, though. I was in Tin Shui Wai recently, and you can see Shenzhen <laughs> from the from the train station. So it's a, uh, but there is another international school in Tianmen, isn't there? So I guess there's yeah. international schools. It's a, a oh, Western one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it's. 
I guess nowadays Hong Kong is is just a composite. It doesn't matter where within Hong Kong a school is. If you want that education, that's where you'll go. What What is the mainland curriculum like, uh, Mr. Yip? Do you know? Uh, the mainland, How would it differ uh, to, say, the Hong Kong It's one? quite different from Hong Kong. Uh, you know, um, uh, one of the major uh, differences would be, you know, uh, the, uh, the, exa- the, the examination it is t- <coughs> heading for. Uh, so it would be heading for the, uh, you know, uh, uh, public examinations yeah. in, in mainland China. Yeah. And also, uh, is heavily, uh, you know, uh, the contents of the curriculum, uh, involves, uh, subjects like political politics and which in Hong Kong, uh, I, I think for a time being, we do not have that kind of, uh, subjects. Hmm. Uh, is IB much done on the mainland? Not too much, I think. Uh, but I think, well, in this, New interaction uh, in in this new school. Uh, I'm not sure whether they are allowed to run an IB school, uh, IB curriculum as well. So, uh, so there are a lot of things that we are not very certain yet. Uh, we will see what is the final announcement. But uh, but in Hong Kong, in many internet international schools, we can see that they are running different kinds of different curriculums so uh so that is a possible uh situation okay well look you many thanks for joining us vice president of the hong kong professional teachers union former uh, education sector lawmaker thank you very much indeed uh mike many thanks to you great show as usual. the weather of course <laughs> before we go cloudy with showers and schools the showers are heavy at times with some thunderstorms and the thunderstorm warning still in effect temperatures up to about 28 degrees the weather will be unsettled with squally showers and thunderstorms in the next couple of days too and the showers will be heavy at times the standby signals number one still in place 27 degrees at the moment and a relative humidity now of 91%. Here are five ways to prevent heat stroke this summer. One, check weather conditions. Two, wear light-coloured and loose clothing. Use umbrellas and wide-brimmed hats outdoors. Three, drink more water. Four, stay in the shade and avoid prolonged exposure to the sun. And five, seek medical help if feeling unwell. For details, please visit chp.gov.hk. 931, the news with Susan Lavender. Three Chinese nationals and two Mauritanians have been abducted from a construction site in the west of Mali. A Mauritanian news agency reported that the gunmen arrived on motorbikes and fled with the hostages. No group has said it carried out the attack, but correspondents say jihadist militants linked to al-Qaeda or the Islamic State group are suspected. A joint investigation by 16 media organisations has provided detailed evidence that human rights activists, journalists and lawyers around the world are being targeted by at least 10 authoritarian governments using hacking software sold by an Israeli surveillance company. The use of the software, called Pegasus, has been reported in The Washington Post, The Guardian and other news outlets. 
Danish cartoonist Kurt Vestergaard, best known for his controversial caricature of the Prophet Muhammad, has died. He was 84. I'll have more news at 10 o'clock. Stand by for the brew. Uh, sociology prof from the University of Set and Costume Designer, interpreter of Beethoven, and by oh so shy, quiet, and retiring doggy council co founder of Rockefeller Records. Hello. This is a really for adults, it's not really for kids. Good morning. Yeah, well, it's fun, you know. Hello. Decipher what's happening behind the myth. Good morning. Inter- inter- and also observations. Absolutely no way. On your radio and live online, this is The Morning Brew. Good morning to you and welcome to Monday here on Morning Brew. Hope you had a great weekend. Well, at 10.10, the all-knowing award-winning local and world rugby report, of course, from Hong Kong Rugby's CEO, Robbie McRobbie. That's how we get things going around here. Tracy Kwan with us after that, live from New York, with this week's somewhat bookish slowdown from the Big Apple. Did you know that the humble harmonica, or mouth organ, is actually a virtuoso solo instrument with a considerable repertoire? And you will have heard it loads and loads and loads in movie soundtracks as well. After 11.30, Leanne Nichols, who's the artistic director of the City Chamber Orchestra, will be with us to invite you to listen to some serious harp this week at City Hall with Hong Kong-born harmonica star Gordon Lee. Now, the concert's going to be conducted by our friend and resident morning brew muso Colin Touchin, but I can't afford more than one multi-million dollar appearance from him in one week. 27 minutes to 10 o'clock for a Monday. Let's go. 